I'm Kim St. James. This is Night Fever, celebrating New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello, boys. Hey there. Um, our guest today is a clothing designer, a jewelry designer, an interior designer. You might recognize his work with Cher, uh, Tina Turner, Grace Jones, Lady Gaga, Madonna, Rihanna, Doja Cat, Little Nas X, the list goes on and on and on, ad infinitum, and we will get to all of them. you say it. Yeah, it's a very impressive list. Um, (laughs) uh, Welcome, Michael Schmidt, it's good to see you. Oh my God, it's great to see you guys. It's great to be seen again. You know, right. I um, was going through old diaries, as I do every episode, trying to find stories about people. And I realized that we have known each other for almost 37 years now. Yeah, I would say 83 or 84. Eight, yeah, eight, yeah, right? 84 probably. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. crazy? It's and nuts. I it's... was trying to pinpoint the exact moment that we met, and I couldn't uh-huh. do it. Do you remember meeting Lisa and I? Yes, and only because Lisa will never let me forget it. And it was the it was a night it was a night at the Gaiety. Oh, oh, well, okay. I'm glad you brought this up because <laughs> I want to hear your version, and then I'm going to tell my version because we kept we, Lisa mentioned this, but I want to set the stage a little more because the story is crazier than than we let on before. And you will remember definitely better than I, but because uh, I don't retain this stuff very well, but. Um, uh, I remember because I used to go there a lot, and <laughs> I, it was my <laughs> it was my favorite place back pre Giuliani Times Square, and uh, and oh yeah yeah the gaiety wow well um, okay so what what happened was is that for some reason Lisa and I ended up at the gaiety I don't know wait wait can you guys happened. describe the gaiety just because like that yeah. for okay yeah it was. Above the Howard Johnsons in Times right. Square, it was yeah. a theater, and it was the dingiest, the skeeziest, the the scuzziest uh, of <laughs> male stripper clubs for yeah. male, and it yeah. was full nudity and full release. They would go good. They would just pleasure themselves until there was no more pleasuring to be done, <laughs> and then they would want. And it was around. a pleasure. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And then they would yeah. wander around and come and sit with you as you were pleasuring yourself in the audience. <laughs> and it, like, Which I never I, did, by the way. But well, I was very shy. But what the, 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 how much was it to get in? Like five bucks, ten bucks? No, it's probably, bucks? yeah, ten bucks or something. And, yeah. and that would just be as long as you wanted, yeah. right? And then you'd have to tip them additionally. Yeah. Oh, and, and there, there were, you know, there were homeless people sleeping next to you. When you were, I mean, there were people who lived at the Gaiety, I believe. And it yeah. became this kind of place that, like, like it became a place, right? Because I remember oh, yeah. when we went a few times and it became a place that people would go to, like, on their way or after. Oh, yeah. That, that, that for some reason, I think it was Anita Howie maybe had said to Lisa, why don't you meet us there? Because... We, Lisa and I arrived, and I'm in my sequins and high heels and bleach blonde hair in my lunchbox. And Lisa is in her little booby outfit and her big hair and, you know, big smile. And she's, you know, <laughs> hello, darling, to everyone. Right. And she walks in, and we traipse in, and you are sitting in a corner in a full-length mink. I, I know <laughs> this is true. I know this is And you had full makeup on and jewels. <laughs> and you're sitting with Suzanne Barsh. And Suzanne is in a bustier in a big wig. And we all come tracing in, darling, darling. Oh, it's so much oh to my God. And then later, Howie and Anita come and join us. And so we are a, a row of freaks in, in the, the dark, dingy dungeon. Right. We had, yeah, we had to compete for attention with the dancers on the stage. But I remember all of the dancers, after they got off stage, they would come and talk to you and say, hey, Michael, how are you? (laughs) Completely naked and dripping. And you'd be like, oh, hey, Joey. Hey, Bobby. And you knew them all. But so we, Lisa and I had been to area a couple times before this. And every time we would get in, but Michael Clancy, the doorman, would give us sort of a rough time about getting comps, right? 
And he'd always say, well, now, why do you deserve comps? And we'd say, because we love you, Michael, or something silly. And sometimes he'd give us a comp and a comp or like a half price or something. But so this night, we all after the gaiety, we all went in a limousine down to area together. And when we got there, the crowds parted and Suzanne and Michael Schmidt and Howie Montag and Anita and James and Lisa all walked in. And Michael Clancy, the doorman, did this like double take, like, what on earth are you two? You've been here once and you're arriving with like Howie Montag <laughs> and Anita Stark and Suzanne and Michael. And ever since then, we never had a problem getting comp. Right. You know, for right. the rest of our lives, we were fine because we arrived that one time from the gaiety with you. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I remember my first time going to Area. I was I was just right off the bus. I mean, I, I got to New York in I went to New York in eighty three, July of eighty three to see Diana Ross in Central Park. Oh yes. And it was the greatest thing I've ever seen. And it actually is the reason I do what I do today. It really, really impacted me in such a profound way. But anyway, so Wait, this is the one where it started raining and she was performing in the rain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Greatest thing I've ever seen to this day. And I, I remember that the first night I got to New York, I, uh, I I only knew one person in New York, and it was a girlfriend from Kansas City who moved to New York to model. And I said, I have to come to New York to see this concert. Can I stay with you? And she lived on 4th and B. And she said, sure. So I saved up all my ducats and and uh, bought a ticket to New York and I had maybe $40 in my pocket and I stayed with her and I slept in her bathtub. And, but the first night I was there, I saw Madonna for $2 at the Ritz. <laughs> and she was doing Borderline and Lucky Star and all Burning that stuff. Up, yeah. It was so great, it was so great. And then I saw the concert and then I just decided to stay in New York, you know, as one does. So I quickly discovered the gaiety and uh, <laughs> and then, but anyway, my first time going to area. Wait, 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 wait. You came to see Diana Ross, you saw Madonna, and then you discovered the gaiety. It's like, it's a very, <laughs> well, that like, is the typical right. New York pattern right there. Welcome that to my life, pattern. yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, the first time I went to area, I went alone and I didn't know what to expect. And I'm standing at the very back, you know, where the taxis are letting people off. And I'm like, hi, hi, you know, with no help whatsoever of catching Michael's eye. And um, all of a sudden, a cab pulls up and a woman, beautiful woman, gets out of the cab. And she walks up and the crowd starts to part. And she sees me and she says, hello. And I said, hello. And I knew who it was. It was Annie Flanders. Oh, wow. And she said, would you like to come inside? And I said, oh, yes, please. You know, and I, I was 19, 20, something like that. And uh, and she grabs me by the hand, and she and the, literally the Michael just says, you know, he points, and the crowds mm -hmm. part, and Annie saunters in because Annie was the queen of us all, you know, running details magazine, uh, and uh, we've been inseparable ever since. Yeah. Traveled the world together, and uh, all all of that, and um, but anyway, that was my first. Time going to area. Do you remember any of the people you saw inside or any of the, what, what was the theme? Sure. I mean, uh, Grace Jones was there. I remember, uh, I think the, um, the opening was, uh, art. Yeah. And it was one where Andy Warhol stood in the vitrine, you know, for mm -hmm. people that don't know, area was a club that had all of these like windows, like a store window lining the halls and everything. And they would, each vitrine was a different scenario and they were highly theatrical and wonderful and changed every month. It was every month, right? Yeah. It was every few months like, or something. Like, like eight, six weeks or eight weeks. Something, something like that, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so, you know, for me, a kid just literally off the bus, it was really, 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 really outrageous and amazing and showed me the potential of what New York could offer. And, you know, I never looked back.
that is really a fairy tale introduction. So I was like, did you ever talk to Annie about like why she picked you or like how you clicked in that way? Like, well, I do have to say, I what what we are mentioning here is that Michael Schmidt was it, it, and still is, but was the most beautiful oh. boy in all of Manhattan. But, I mean, <laughs> Come just, on. I mean, you would see Michael Schmidt and you would you, you would gasp at just how per like the makeup on point that uh, I mean, everything about you screamed "I belong in area." Area, Michael. What James says is true, but you also must know about James that he says this about everybody. I know that. I know that. That's why I know he's bullshitting me right now. But I love it. I love it. I need it. I want it. Thank you. I, I want to um, sort of go back a little bit, and then we're going to get back to Annie because there that's sort of a pivotal moment. For yeah. You. But I want you grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. I did. I, as a kid, we used to move every few, every couple of years. My dad was a sales rep, uh, and we would he would have to be assigned to new territory. So we would move about every two years until I was about thirteen or so, and we settled in Kansas City, and uh, and I was there until I moved to New York. But um, but that's where I went to high school and all that. Tell me if I'm wrong because I think I remember this about you: is that in college. You befriended the artist Nick Cave. Is that correct? Yes. Although it wasn't in college, I never went to college. But I, uh, Nick, Nicky, as I knew him then, when we were like sixteen, we both grew up in Kansas City. For people who don't know about Nick Cave, this isn't the the singer Nick Cave. This correct. Is the artist Nick Cave. Yes. And listeners out there, if you don't know, Google Nick Cave artist sound suits because yes. he creates these looks that I always say are Bigfoot meets Lee Bowery. Is, is right, sort of what right. It is. It's these right. enormous, enormous fur and everything in the kitchen sink is thrown on. They're so magical. I mean, he's truly one of the great sculptors of our time. Unbelievable stuff. But yeah. I can't help but think that that would be an influence on you and your design aesthetic where yeah. the idea that you can take chandeliers and plastic and wood and stuff and turn it into outfits. Yes, very much so. Although I will tell you that back then, um, and I would just sit with him while he would sew, and you know, he would—he was a fashion designer back then. He—he he made clothing. He didn't do sculptural works like what we've come to know his work is now. Right. But he was always very, very progressive in his, you know, aesthetically, but also just in his way of approaching work and life, and and I just. You know, he wasn't only, but he was, but maybe a year or two years older than me. But um, I was so profoundly impacted by him and his his just, you know, I never I, I never really understood prior to being with Nikki that uh, that art was a way of life, and you know, uh, it, and it, it wasn't just something you made that hung on a wall or or was a sculpture or something like that, or was worn. I just, he was, he was very much an influence on my way of thinking about how anything could be art, anything could be fashion, anything could be, you know, as long as you brought, you know, a distinctive eye, a creative, uh, well-skilled hand to it, you could really, you know, I, it, he was my first exposure to you know, arts and the art. And, and we, you know, plus we were just big, you know, we've always, we went to concerts together. We went to loft parties together. We went to, you know, I would, we, we spent a lot of time at his house just, and I just was mesmerized by his ability to create, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, it was extremely influential on my expanding my thinking, you know. Did you have this aware? How old were you when you, like, you understood that, art was a way of life like is this before you came to new york or or this yeah this this was about then when i was about 16 but i had always been creative but you know you get your driver's license when you're 16 and you're you know you, then you hit the town and that's when i met nikki and uh and then so that was but prior to that i had grown up and was always sort of you know, I was crafty and I was good in art class. It was the only class that I was any good at. <laughs> and um, so I was good at 
macrame and you know i mean you, you got to remember it was the 70s right and ceramics and you know like all that stuff and you know when i was young i you know i would enter like i initially i wanted to be an architect and i i designed like houses and stuff and i won competitions and i you know they took me all the way to the governor's office and all this stuff i mean i did I was involved and engaged in a lot of different creative enterprises from the time I was super, super young, just because I didn't have any other outlet. You know, you just do what you do when you can do it. And, and uh, so I, I was, I would win these contests and then they would, they would take me to these art fairs and, you know, or, you know, I, I, I don't even remember honestly, but it was just, it was a crazy, you know, it's a creative upbringing. And my parents were very supportive of that. When we first met you, I think you were uh, working at Erickson Beeman. Um, yeah. Yeah, with like Josh and Billy Beyond and Joshua yeah. Jordan. And uh, there, there's a lot of um, just like eating things. And, and that's sort of probably, I imagine, where you also got the patience to do uh -huh. what it is that you do. When was it that you discovered that you had a, a capacity for chain mail? Well, um, I was working for Eric Beeman, which I, was a, a, a company that um, still exists. Erickson Beeman still exists. And it was... Yeah, it's sort of having a renaissance right now as well. Yeah. At the time, they were, they were necklaces and jewelry and earrings and things that were strung on. They were beads, crystals strung on strips of suede. And they were quite popular. I mean, Whitney Houston wears them in the, you know, or what's that? biggest video she did with I want to dance with somebody uh, you know they, they're quite popular and so I got it Howie Montag introduced me to um, Vicky Sarge and all these people and they uh, hired me because I was crap because what I had done when I first got to New York I couldn't get a job per se because I didn't know how to do anything <laughs> so I started making jewelry out of things I would find on Canal Street or just in the fucking garbage, you know? I mean, I would just make jewelry out of whatever. And so the jewelry ended up in a couple stores and, and so on. So I got this job working for this other jewelry company. And pretty soon I, I started developing new techniques for them and, and saying, oh, we should put the crystal on metal pins and link them together and do all this stuff. And I always had this weird affinity for metal and adapting unusual materials to the body in some way. And and at one point I was uh, researching a collection of, I think it was like pre-Edwardian jewelry or something, I don't know. Um, and I discovered techniques for doing chain mail. And I just like, it was like a bolt of lightning went through me and I, immediately recognized and i don't i'm not big on like past lives i was gonna say this sounds like you were in, a, in some sort of iron worker in the middle ages yeah because i really will tell you that i immediately knew it i knew it like i knew wow i knew i knew myself and and i i i went out bought myself a pair of pliers and some rings and i i just did it you know and i it wasn't like I had to study it. It's like I already knew how to do it. It was it built into your DNA. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of yeah, it was really weird. And that had very rarely happened to me before. So I explored it and um uh and I ended up doing some jewelry and things and then I started expanding and I made a dress. Well now hold on before we go any further, because this <laughs> is this is the point that I wanted to get to right here. Okay. Dress the chainmail dress that ends up not only on the <laughs> cover of uh, details, right? Details, because yeah. Annie, the relationship with Annie Flanders, but then it was right. also in the window of Agnes B or Diane B. Diane B. Mm -hmm. Diane B. Down in Soho, and that's when who should be walking past? <laughs> but take away, the, take it away, Michael. So, my friend Jessica worked in and Diane B, and she said, "Oh, I think my boss would be." interested in, in having the stress in the window. Would you mind? And I said, sure. 
And so, lo and behold, the dress ended up in the window of Diane B. in Soho, which then became Comme des Garçons. But it was a very influential store at that time. It was the most chic store uh, in downtown Manhattan. And, uh, and so the dress is in the store, and the next day, lo and behold, Cher walks by. <laughs> and she goes into the store, and she says to them, you know, I really love that dress in the window. I'd love to have whoever made that uh, make me some custom things. Who can you put me in touch with them? And they said no. <laughs> they said they said they you know because they wanted her to have to go through them to do oh, it. Right. Okay. Which yeah. I understand that. I really do. Sure. I understand that. But uh, so Cher said okay, and she walked out. Well, Jessica ran after her and slipped her mind. Now that is a friend. That is a true, true <laughs> that is friend. A great, right great there. friend. Tackle share yeah. on the middle yes. of Wooster Street. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so a couple days later, and I was living basically in a squat. Okay, because because this is the funniest part of the story right here, is that you are in like a tenement hotel, right? <laughs> yeah. Lisa said that doesn't have a phone. Yeah, no phones. We had beepers. Remember yeah. beepers? Yeah, sure. And so uh, I get this beep, and it's like, oh, I don't recognize this number. So I go down to the payphone, <laughs> and I call this number, and I said, hi, this is Michael. I just got a call. Hello, Michael. <laughs> this is Cher. <laughs> and... and and you know, I and I'm like, well, I, first of all, you've got to think that it's one of your yeah. friends pranking you, right? Don't you think yeah, it's probably yeah. like Sally Randall I mean, or, or something? Yeah, uh. um, no, Jessica had told me that oh, she okay. had that Cher had come in the store, so I knew, but I didn't think anything would ever come of it, you know. So Cher invites me to her house. Now, you have to know that as we all did, I grew up on share of course growing you know she informed everything about who i was as a kid who i am as a designer who i am as a gay man of course i mean like she and she really really taught me and taught us all how glamorous a woman could yes. be right i mean that was share and so for me this was like this was like god is calling you know this was a religious experience and so sure enough she invites me over to her house and she she was living at above the tower records yes. on fourth street yes i remember broadway uh-huh on this as was annie flanders turns oh, out it was my. the same building that annie yeah. flanders lived in as did keith richards i mean it was a legendary place to live what did you bring with you like what were you wearing what like well first of all you have to know this about me at the time <laughs> i was an original god. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was like OG, like old school goth. Like white, white, white face, black, black, black coal eyes, white lips. White lips. The hair um, in the in the face a little yes. I the, all of it. Like the all of it. And so I go over to her house and she couldn't have been more, I show up and she must have thought, who is this freak? Like, you know, like, what, what do I do with this? <laughs> and, but she couldn't have been more lovely. And we sat for hours and hours and just, we just laughed and talked and, um, and, and, and she was just so, she was fascinated by me, which, or, you know, professed to be or whatever. I mean, I don't know how much you can fake that, but she was so wonderful and she just wanted to, she's that kind of person. She's like, she absorbs Curious. the essence yeah. of people. You know, she really wants to know a person. She really wants to know what they tick. And so she just, and I was like, yeah, but, but, but you're share. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I'm like. But the thing that I know about you is that you, are constantly, so every time I see you, you've just had lunch with the Queen of England or, I mean, like something. <laughs> and yet you are so blasé and I can't have ever imagined you gushing over celebrity because it just, it seems like it's just ingrained in your, your life. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I will say that I don't gush, but I do. But in my mind, sure. I'm losing my shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm literally losing, losing it. There was a couple times that that has happened to me. Not many times. I mean, most of the time, you know, I'm pretty okay with it. But um, so a couple times I've been blown away. Um, I'll tell you about a couple of them. But um, <laughs> there, you know, but she was like really so fucking fabulous. And we just became immediate friends. And, and, and so I started working a lot with her. Long story short, she started then giving my things away as gifts to John Bon Jovi. Tina Turner, you know, um, to all these rockers. You did the whole tour with Cher in the the turn back time things. Was that you? I can't remember. I did um, a ton of stuff, and um, it, it, it eventually grew into much bigger things. But you know, yeah, it was a lot of really crazy. Um, but then when she introduced you to Tina, that's when you did the Beyond Thunderdome, the anti-entity outfit. Is that no, it? No, 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 no. I did not do that. Okay, that was okay. after. That that piece was done by the studio, although it was Chainmail. Yeah, I remember. Um, I did not do that. I What I did for her came later. Um, and she... Uh, that came at the behest of her Brits. That was... Okay, what happened was I share. Uh, introduced me to Bon Jovi and I started doing all these rock bands. Well, John uh, got asked to do a line of clothing, um, which had never been done before, a Bon Jovi line of clothing, like rock and roll clothing. And he always thought this was a stupid idea. Um, nobody had done it before. And so I'm not going to do it. And he always said, no, it was these Japanese big investors. He was the biggest rock star of the world at the time. And so Finally, then he met me and we started doing a lot of stuff together. And um, he said, okay, he went back to them and he said, okay, I'll do this if you get this kid to design it. So I designed this whole rock and roll line of clothing, Bon Jovi line of clothing. So, and it was like acid wash denim and, uh, you know, like motorcycle dresses. And I mean, it was pretty, some of it was pretty cool. And um, like it had chain mail in the rips of the denim, you know, and all this stuff. So they, he moved me to L.A. So this is where I'm going with this. So I live in L.A. now, and it's like 1987. All this happened within a, like a three or four year period of me first arriving in New York. So it was a whirlwind. But um, so I moved to L.A. and start doing clothing for all of the you know big rockers of the day. And and this is this is like Steven Tyler. This is. This is yeah. Guns N' Roses or Motley like, Crue yeah. and things like yeah. that. Sure. Okay. You're so young at this point. Like, how did you understand, like, who was managing your business, the business aspect of this? Like, even when you went to share and, and like, did you have someone helping you with that aspect of it? Or was it just like, oh, no. I'll make this for you for $300 or something like that? Yeah, I just did it, everything myself. Um, and... So I, yeah, I've never really successfully had a manager. They never could really figure out what to do with me. So I just so kind of, Hello. Life, I'm just, <laughs> uh, you know what I I'm understand. saying? So, <laughs> James, please, we manage you. <laughs> we just don't <laughs> charge you. Successfully, you manage me successfully. I don't think oh you know what God. Would you manage me too, please? <laughs> well, that's what we, we have to pay James. <laughs> and yet when I ask for a pair of slippers, they say, no, they're too expensive. <laughs> I want slippers for my dollars Weren't they like... But James, <laughs> any piece of chain mail you want, you can have. <laughs> right? Exactly. Oh my god. Well, so I so I go to LA and I'm I'm starting to like do all these bands, and that's when I started working with Tina um, because she was working on this record, um, a foreign affair, and ninety. It was early in the nineties, but she didn't want to do anything with me initially. It was um, she was really dead set against it because I had. Her Brits asked me to make a dress for a photo shoot. And I said, of course. And uh, so I designed this crystal, linked crystal dress. And so we told Tina about it and she said, oh no, I don't wanna do that. You know, I've, I've done a million of those. It's not interesting to me anymore, you know, I, you know. And so Herb took me aside and he said, listen, just do it. I will pay for it. Just 
you know, I want to shoot her in something like this. I believe in you and I, I want you to do this dress. So I said, okay. So I did it and um, he, we had a fitting and she ended up loving it. And, it. and it was, he shot her and I was, I was there at the shoot and uh, she wore it and it ended up being, actually I have it. Uh, if you see, I was, okay. Can you see that? I don't know if you can see that, but is that the picture? It's a, a right there? I feel like I know. It's that. such an iconic yeah. pose and image too. Like, yeah, it's like I can see it, even though it's just the sort of blur yeah, in the background. It's like, yes, I know that picture. <laughs> she signed it. She said, "Michael, a great body deserves a great dress." Love Tina. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> She's so right, but. So, and that was sort of the dawn of our, you know, um, I'd met her through Cher, but that was, we didn't really start working together until later. So um, that was how that all happened. And then we started doing a lot of stuff together. So, um, but anyway, but it was so cool because, it, you know, back then there were no stylists. That wasn't a career. There, it would just be me and the entertainer. And I had a big rule about not allowing management or accountants or anybody else in the room, you know, when we would discuss these things because too many people's opinions, you know, and the only thing that matters is what we do, you know, you, you, you work with the entertainer. So it would just be me and Tina Turner alone in a hotel room. And she would be trying on things that I had made for her. And she would go through the iconic Tina moves, oh, wow. like the proud Mary moves. Oh, to see and if, to see if the chain mail, whatever, worked with the, with the yes, Timmy. Yes, to see and, uh, if she could move. And she would be going, da na 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 da na 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 da na 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 you know, all of it. So you're getting a, you're getting private Tina Turner, just you concert. Private dancing. Uh, she was my private dancer. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally losing my shit. This is one of the times that I was really, really losing my bloody mind. So, because what, like my love for her goes back my whole life. I mean, when I was 16 and I first got my driver's license, I was in Kansas City and I found out that she was performing with the Ikeettes. She had just left Ike, all that stuff. And she was going out on the road on a little tour and she was gonna perform in Topeka, Kansas, which is an hour away. And I called up the venue, I'm 16, call up the venue and I say, hi, um, I noticed that you're not promoting your Tina Turner concert and she really needs our support. <laughs> and um, I would be willing to make posters and put them up all over Kansas City because I think a lot of people would drive out to see her if you would give me two tickets. <laughs> and they said, okay, <laughs> you know? And so I drew a picture of Tina. This is after her show at the Ritz, that legendary show with Bowie and Mick Jagger and everybody. And I drew a little picture of her from like Rolling Stone or something and said, Tina Turner, you know, did the whole poster. I put them up in every lamp post, every record store all around Kansas City, and then I got to drive out and see her. It was my one of my first concert experiences. Now, did you ever tell her this story? Yeah, I told her she was really, she tickled. said she was, <laughs> she was tickled by that, yeah. But that's how much of a fanboy I was for these iconic, especially female singers all through my life. I mean, the first concert I ever went to when I was 16 was Blondie. We need to talk about the razor blade dress. It's it's like you have this incredible like career trajectory and you're working and um, I'm just curious, like during that time, you're super young, right? You come to New York, you have that the fantasy, like, you know, uh, um, New York experience. And then you're, you know, within minutes, you're hanging out with Cher and Tina Turner and stuff like that. Like, were you, were you also going out at night and clubbing and partying? And when I go through my um, diaries, literally every single, I my diaries, I wrote what I wore, where I went and who I saw. That's basically all it is. But every single night it's Michael Schmidt 
you know, my, yeah. like you were out every night. Every single night. So I had this incredible work ethic where you were up the next morning chain mailing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's incredible how, how much you went out, but how much you, you actually got accomplished at the same time. Well, I mean, you know, we were 20 years old, mm -hmm. you know, you can do that when you're mm -hmm. that age. But um, yeah, I mean, there was so much to go out for, you know, there was so, so much to do, you know, there was so much that couldn't, you couldn't miss it. So, you know, exactly. I mean, we saw each other every night. So, um, and then of course I ran a club. Uh, uh, what happened was I was in LA and I, um, I Nirvana came out with Nevermind. And all of a sudden, everything died. Like everything in my all world. All the glamour like, was gone and it was grunge. All the glamour, all, all, it just was. And I was like, so all of a sudden there was like nothing to do anymore. And I'm stuck in LA, you know, with nothing going on. And so I really missed New York. So then I, I said, I'm just gonna go back to New York. And so I, I went back in um, 90, Two, I guess, and then we were talking, and then at one point ninety three, friend. Are we at Squeezebox already? Yeah, we're gonna get into that. Just very quickly before we get into that, there's a couple other iconic women and outfits and things like that that I wanted to just do very quickly. Um, Eartha yeah. Kitt, and you're hanging oh, with yeah. Eartha, and she's talking about a date with Albert Einstein or something. Yeah, what would it? Cause, I mean, Eartha Kitt to me, I that I would just drop dead right there the minute she started yeah. roaring at me. Eartha was so lovely, and she, I met her at a party. Um, gosh, I don't even remember where, but uh, but she then um, and she asked me what I did, and you know, and I told her that I make clothing, and she said, "Well, would you make a gown for me?" And I was like. But I was obsessed with Eartha Kid growing up. Sure. So I was, and, and she was like alone at a table or she had like a little assistant with her or something. I went over to her and was like, uh, uh, excuse me, Miss Kid, I, I, I would never be able to forgive myself if I didn't say hello to you. I'm such a, such a huge fan of yours. And, and, you know, I, I just, you know, I rat, I rattled on as I do. And, um, and she was so sweet and so lovely, and and we just kind of hit it off. And and I and she asked me if I would make her a gown, and I said, well, I mean, of course I would be thrilled, but you know, I I don't really do, you know, gowns like the, what we think of as gowns. I mean, I I do like chainmail clothing, you know. And she's like, oh, that sounds so interesting, you know. And she she had me do her a floor length gown with these big dolman sleeves and the whole thing. And we ended up doing quite a few together. And But she would come from the Carlisle. She would walk down to my studio for fittings. Where was um, and I was on the Triangular Building on uh, 9th and 14th Street, 9th Avenue and 14th. Oh, I lived there with Phoebe's. And, um, yes. yes, exactly. I lived across the hall from Phoebe. Right above the Hellfire and right above Jay's. Yeah, a club with more sex clubs in it than any other club in, in in history. Yes. And if you lived in the building, you could get into the sex clubs for free. Right, exactly. And, oh, why do you think I lived there? No. Um, when you would walk from the Carlisle on the Upper East Side down to 9th and 14th, that's amazing. And, and she would say, and I would say, um, you know, Eartha, I will send a car for you to come to the fitting. You know, you don't have to walk. It's like, and she's like, oh, no, darling. I like to see the beautiful, <laughs> you know? I mean, she was just like, she really liked to, she was very Garbo-esque in that way. <laughs> you know, she really loved people watching and seeing the people and I, you know, but anyway, she was just, she was a great love. You know, Michael, I have a, an off-topic question about chainmail. Like, is there a shortcut? Like, if someone orders, like, a floor-length dress, do you think, oh, for fuck's sake, I got to, like, all that chainmail I got to make? Is there, no, <laughs> is there no, like, machine? Yeah, I mean, are you doing it on your own, or do you invent, have friends come over and help you? Or and does it take, like, a month, like it did with Lee Bowery? It depends. Um, some machines, uh, some of, the, like, when I first started, I would hand-link every link. Um, and then 
um, I started developing techniques of working with aluminum. And when I was in Los Angeles, I, I built myself an anodizing, aluminum anodizing facility, which allows you to uh, color aluminum, so I could do a chainmail and color. And I would, I built all these crazy equipment for making my own rings on mass. You know, like I could make like thousands of them at a time. Dang. It is so insane that you just invent machines <laughs> that will colorize yeah. aluminum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was quite crazy with it. <laughs> and, um, and now there's a lot of machine manufactured mesh. So, um, so I use that as well. Well, like, let's say the, the, the mesh Daisy Duke shorts that you did for Rihanna on the cover of Rolling Stone, was that, yeah. did you hand do the mesh or was that from a machine? That was a, a machine manufactured mesh, but I invented a technique for printing on mm. it because she had asked me for a pair of shorts. Uh, her stylist, B. Ackerland, uh, asked me for a pair of shorts. I love B. Oh, so amazing! Yeah, yeah. B. B. Is one of the great stylists in the world, and we work very closely together all the time, a lot. And um, she asked me, I, you know, I, I just need a pair of shorts for a shoot. She didn't really tell me anything more, and we didn't really have a directive on like what kind of shorts or anything. And so I said, well, I have an idea, and and why don't we do just like a classic pair of Daisy Dukes, the most iconic shorty shorts you can get. And I will print, I'll make them out of mesh. I'll figure it out somehow. So I took a pair of thrift shop denim shorts and took them apart, photographed all of the pieces. And then we developed a technique for feeding the mesh through a printer, special kind of printer uh, with special kind of ink. And, um, and printed the pieces of the shorts onto the mesh and then unlinked them and then linked them back into shorts. Oh so, uh, and it had the tatters and it had all the stuff, you know, and- If your listeners out there, Google, once again, Google Rihanna, Daisy Dukes, Rolling Stone. And it's just, they're, they're absolutely- Right. Great. I also very, just moving along really quickly, the Lady Gaga bubble dress with the David LaChapelle shoot that was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Oh and yeah, that, that was, was fun. You, that, right? was, that was me. I, I That was purely accidental um, because I had made her another dress for that shoot out of, it was during the time of paparazzi. So I made her a, a full length gown out of old um, eight millimeter porn movies, you know, and, and they were woven together to create this gown. You didn't know they were porn. I just did that because I got a kick out of it. But, um, but, and it had a massive train and it was a whole thing. And then I showed up to the shoot and David said, look, uh, the set is not finished for that particular look. So we're not gonna be able to shoot it. So of course I was heartbroken. Um, but he said, you know, I do have this other set and it's all these, it's pink and it's all these bubbles, but we don't have anything for her to wear. So I said, okay, well, give me 15 minutes. So I ran around the studio and found these little plastic bubbles and I drilled them out, sewed them together and then scotch taped them to her body. And that became the Rolling Stone yeah, cover. So gorgeous. So, I had it, never I had it on my bulletin board for, for months and months and months. You and did. I love that <laughs> one. Um, let's also, before we get back to Squeezebox, because we will, I just want to hear the Debbie Harry razor blade dress story as well. That's so iconic. That was in the Metropolitan, the, the costume exhibit, right? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah, it ended up in the, in the Met. Um, well, Debbie's always kind of let me do whatever... I wanted to do for her. She was very, um, you know, willing to go there. And, you know, because she had this dress in the, so a lot of times I would do like versions of her classic pieces from the seventies in a really different way, in an updated way so that they still were in keeping with her story, you know? And so she had this dress in the seventies that was um, a little black Steven Sprouse dress that it might have even been something before Sprouse that she made herself because she made her own clothes in the early, early days. And it had little razor blade trim along the bottom. And so I thought, God, I, I would like to do a, 
dress, a gown made out of solid razor blades. And it will look like a metal column, you know, um, and you won't really even know that they're razor blades until you really see it up close. And so she's like, okay, you know, and so I had to figure it out and I had to hand dull like 3000 uh, razor blades on sandpaper <laughs> and then sew them onto this gown. And she's, she tells this story that, you know, she wore it once in New Orleans for uh, New Year's Eve. And she was standing at the edge of the stage and all the lights, the electricity went out and all the lights went out and all the, you know, no, you know, and, uh, and she's standing there and she feels all of these hands start to like creep up her body and like, and touch the dress and everything. And she said it was the most erotic um, experience on stage that she had ever had. And, and, and it was just like, she was standing there and sort of, you know, and people are feeling up this like metal column razor blade dress, you know, and all this stuff. I mean, she, she really worked it. Um, and it ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That was a proud moment, I will say. Before we get to Spiesbach, I know I keep saying this over and over again, but you also designed a room at the Palladium and I had forgotten about this. Um, this was oh, in the right. 80s. Was it when the club first opened or was it later on? And tell us about the room because it's pretty spectacular. It was, it was, um, it was in the 80s. Uh, it was when it was in, it was at the Palladium and the Palladium had been open for a little while. And I believe Kenny Scharf already had his room yeah. there. Um, but then they decided to expand the club and they, they knocked down a wall and they found this old, generator room which housed the massive generators from the you know 20s and 30s that still existed and they so they they wanted to turn it into a little mini club so um so they asked me if i would do it and I, of course i jumped at the chance and i refurbished all of that old machinery but then i took and i you know did a, like a black leather dance floor and all this stuff it's very industrial in the on the dance floor it was and then in the lounge i laid down black carpet and i took silver studs silver upholstery tacks and i laid down over the entire floor um i, I spelled out in braille the lyrics to iggy pop song night clubbing and that was like you didn't know what it was because it was just a bunch unless of docks on the floor. Giant braille. Yeah, <laughs> unless you could read braille for one, and it had to be on the floor, fucked up, and yeah, you know, and had massive, gigantic, giant hands. <laughs> All those uh, those Debbie Harry fans feeling up that dress were on the floor, like feeling. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, did you know Iggy, or did Iggy ever come by and look at that? First time I ever saw Iggy, I, of course, was a, like, I had moved to New York in 83, and my friend Grace and I decided to go to a gym. We decided we would join a gym. Well, first, I can't even see you at a gym in 83. You weighed about 103 pounds. We, yeah, well, we just wanted to go be able to go to the hot tub. Yeah. Yeah. No, we just wanted an excuse to be able to go to the hot tub. So the first day I go to the gym and I'm in the dressing room and I'm, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old. And I was very shy. And so I'm mm -hmm. trying to get dressed like at a locker without anybody seeing me or anything. And I'm really shy. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy <laughs> walking towards me completely naked with three legs and I'm, I, he's like sauntering towards me, just like walking across the locker room. And I look up and it was Iggy Pop. And he had the biggest, most gigantic cock I have ever, to this day, seen. And, and I look at him and, I, I, and he just gives me this little smirk. Like he knows that I'm like losing my shit, not only because it's literally the biggest, most gorgeous dick I've ever seen, but also, oh my God, that's Iggy fucking pop. You know, I told him that years later and he said, yeah, that sounds like me. 
Okay, so now we can get to Squeezebox. Now we're in 92, and you had said that that basically glamour was over, grunge was in, everything that you worked for, everything who you were, your entire identity is now down the drain. Where do you go from there, and what do you do? Right. So I thought, well, you know, I really miss New York a lot. And um, so I just hightailed it back to New York and was just kind of casting around for something to do um, because the kind of not only was the kind of clothing that I made suddenly out of fashion, but also there just isn't really a lot of that happening in New York anyway. I mean, I could have probably gone into theater or, you know, fashion or something like that, but I just wasn't my heart wasn't in it anymore. And so um, one day my my ex, Patrick Briggs, um, who is a singer of an amazing, he has one of the greatest voices I've ever heard. He called me up and he said, I'm managing this club called Don Hills and uh, we want to do a gay night and would you be interested in promoting it? And I said no, because I had never done that before and it sounded like a lot of work. So then I was just kind of talking about it with some friends, with Guy and, you know, uh, Paul Likens and, and, uh, and everybody. And we just started thinking that, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to do the kind of club that we've always complained doesn't exist, you know, because in my world, you know, I, I come from a world of singers from live entertainment, but I'm also, you know, gay and I like drag queens and I like all that stuff too. But all the queens that I know are so talented. Can't we get them a stage, you know, where people can really see what they can do. And so Don Hills has this, you know, it's a live rock and roll club. So um, so I went back to, to him and I said, okay, look, I have this idea for a club. And if we can do this, then we'll do it. I want to have a live punk band with drag queens singing with a live punk band. So it was every Friday night and it started in um, April of 1990. I say 93, Guy says 94, but I'm, I'm sure it was 93. But anyway, um, it, and it ran for the rest of the 90s. I mean, it was a really successful club. But in the beginning, it you know it starts out slow, and we built it up. And I found this really, really amazing queen, new little baby queen, because I needed somebody who could be a hostess, you know, because I knew I would, would have Guy DJing this guy on the... She would do, well, actually, in the very beginning, Howie Pyro DJ. Legendary, legendary Howie Pyro. Absolutely. And so Howie was there from the beginning. And and so we would start out and, and, and it slowly grew. And, and because this was back when there was nothing around there. This is uh, on Greenwich and Spring. And there was lit- you couldn't get a cab there. You couldn't, you know, it was a no man's land. And which worked in our favor because it, 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 there was nobody to complain about the noise. So this was uniquely situated and it was absolutely perfect. And Don Hill was so wonderful and he just let me do whatever the hell I wanted. And so we we found an amazing group of guys as our house band because we, the kind of rock and roll queens of New York and, and girls and boys, we wanted to be able to hang out in the rock and roll club. But I also liked straight boys, you know, I mean, I, I, I like most of my friends were straight. And so I didn't, maybe not most, but a lot of them. And I wanted them to also have a place. I wanted there to be a place where straight and the gays could mix evenly without any problems. So I would bring in a local band, a local, like just straight rock and roll band on the scene. They would open for the Queens. And I made it very clear that they were opening and there was, you know, they were subordinate to the Queens in every way. And we had gay porn showing on the things, but I had girl go-go dancers and boy go dancers. And I had go-go dancers in their eighties. I had go-go dancers that, you know, of every weight class, I had every go-go dancer of every kind of everything that you could imagine. And so it was a very equal, you know, uh, everybody felt welcome and there was no, um, VIP situation or anything like that. And I didn't allow press, which was the most important thing because, People felt like they could do anything there and it wouldn't be reported the next day because a lot of celebrities started to show up. I started having my friends like Debbie Harry, Mark Almond, 
you know, etc. Come Joan Jeff, come and play with the Queens. And so the, the club grew in notoriety very quickly. And my music director, his name is Stephen Trask. And uh, one day he reached out to me and he said, so I have this friend who, um, he's an actor, um, and he wants to workshop this character that he's been working on. Um, we've been writing some music together, and I'd really like to have him in front of a live audience if possible. And he, and he told me his name is John Cameron Mitchell. And could he come? And I said, well, I don't know, because <laughs> this is not for dilettantes. This is, this is not, this is for actual drag queens who really live this as their life, you know, and they really, um, I can't have, I can't open the stage up to a bunch of, you know, <laughs> amateurs, frankly, who, who just are doing this as a lark or, you know, or workshopping their, you know, character or whatever. And he kept asking, kept asking. And I finally, I said, okay, we'll do we it once. Turning the microphone off. <laughs> Exactly. So because I and I said this to John, I said, look, I I don't want to put you in a situation where, you know, people are going to be they wouldn't have been hostile to him, but they might not have been welcoming because, you know, it wasn't what we did. You know, theater was a very, very far removed from what we did anyway. Uh, so one night they workshopped um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And it was all the same songs. It was all the same. It was it was fully fleshed out. Um, the narrative was there. And Mike Potter, who ended up doing all the hair, he was my go-go dancer. Um, so this is how everybody connected. And it was a huge success, I will tell you. It was really, um, it was very well received. So you were responsible for, you were responsible for John Cameron Mitchell's entire career is all because of you. <laughs> No, 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 no. But I mean, it was it was it was very important for for the, uh, the downtown scene to have a stage because there really wasn't any anywhere else. Also, I want to say, didn't you have Boob on the show? Yeah, they started there as well, of course. Boob, which was Theron Smothers and Wallpaper and Desi Monster. Oh, sure. It was. I mean, an amazing, amazing space. I I have many, many memories of being on the floor. Feeling for Braille on the floor at Squeezebox. You would go there and you would never know. Like John Waters in his act to this day still says Squeezebox was the greatest club in New York City history. I mean, that's he says that on stage. So you would go there. Like one night I was standing there and I turn around, I bump into this guy. I look up and I say, excuse me. And it was John Kennedy Jr. You know, I mean, like it was like it would be, you know, you would just turn around and there would be like, Oh, there's, you know, Varushka. Or, oh, there's, you know, somebody told me Dolly Parton came through there one night. I don't believe it because I never saw it. But, um, but like, you know, I got up and did a drag number one night. I didn't do it very often, but for Mistress's birthday. I think I was there that night. I remember you in drag. Yes. That is your drag <laughs> name, Heidi Hole. Heidi Hole. I see season 16 drag race. Heidi Hole, the return of Heidi Hole. <laughs> and, you know, I did um, Ace of Spades and Marilyn Manson sang back up for me. And, you know, it was just like wow. that. Like Joan Jett. Or we, I brought Lena Lovitch over from London. You know, it was just like endlessly, you know, really, really. Boy George was there. You know, it was always like that because it was a good mix of the larger culture but in a very very underground way and they felt safe and we felt all inclusive and you know just was very wonderful experience one of the best experiences of my life well i think we're going to stop there but i do want to just sort of maybe we can shoehorn in a, a little someplace else about dita and the 3d dress and how that came about and you apparently you've known about 3d printing since the 80s or something yeah, I used to go to what NASA used to have, what were called technology transfer seminars, where they would disseminate their crazy technology out to industry. You would like Nike or Calvin Klein or these big companies would come to these symposiums and buy the technology that NASA had developed so that NASA could make back some of the money that they had spent on the space program. 
So I would go to these things religiously every year. And I once saw this 3D printer and it was the size of a car and it would print out some form that couldn't have been made in any other way. And I said, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And one day I'm going to use this technology. And uh, year uh, in 2012, the Ace Hotel in New York um, was doing a, a, a thing on for Fashion Week on 3D printing and how it could affect the fashion industry in the future. And so they brought in a bunch of 3D printers and designers could play around with them, but they needed a finale thing, you know, a thing to tie the whole thing together. And they asked me if I would make a dress. So I said, okay, I will make a dress, but I don't want to just make a dress that will be worn on a model and then forgotten the next day. I want to create a moment. I want to make this technology sexy, you know? So Dita, by this point, was a good friend of mine. And I, and I said, look, I want to do this thing. Um, you know, you just got to trust me. There's no fittings. There's no, yeah. You know, there's no way for me to really describe this thing. You know, it's a brand new technology. It's going to be really cool. Just, you know, just like, okay, you know. And so I designed this gown that was sort of a nod to her, you know, sort of her sort of classical uh beauty, uh, the 30s kind of vibe, you know, big shoulders and a tight little waist. And like, really, it was a, it was sort of elegant in its way, but created through super, super futuristic technology. And so I, I did that, uh, worked on it for many months and, and we, we, we got it worked out and we, I created it. Uh, there, there was a, a CAD designer, an architect in New York who wrote who did the coding for it and helped with that. Um, and then we worked over Skype and then it was printed and then we put it together in my studio and it, and it became quite a sensation largely because of the photographs that Albert Sanchez took of the dress of Dita in the dress. And it really did make that technology sexy. And it was seen by over a billion people. It's traveled around the world with you and it has ended up in I, LACMA, right? Did, wasn't it at LACMA? Yes. Yeah. There was a LACMA and then it was, it went to New York, it went to Australia, went all over the world. I think on your tombstone or in your obituary, that will probably be one of the lead things that you are one of the people who brought 3D fashion, 3D technology to, you know, the world. <laughs> probably. I have enjoyed this so much because the, the the dimensionality of all that you've done is so amazing. I had like I I've always thought of you, Michael, as the chainmail guy. I had no idea about all this other stuff. It's like so amazing. And can can we just uh, a little Nas X thing, right? So you did the Met Ball outfit. Yes, I did the. Um, I had been doing things for him, not mesh or anything like that. Just you know, we do a lot of other things in my studio. We do sculptural works. Yeah. We do all kinds of crazy stuff, and oftentimes it has nothing to do with any kind of mesh. It's just um, you know. But people come to us now because at, what I did was I moved back to LA after Squeezebox to start my studio up again, and that, since then I've been doing clothing for entertainers again. So, um, so I. Uh, the Met Gala thing. I had done several things for the Met Gala. I I did Katy Perry's chandelier dress. Yeah, so I wanted to mention that because you did you work with Jeremy Scott on that? Yes, you collaborate a lot, and it's basically because you know how to make a chandelier wearable, and you don't have to have a giant battery pack sticking on her back. Right, exactly. I mean, I have an incredible team. I have a really amazing team of all women, uh, and they're all incredible. And we, so we're able to, people come to us with all these crazy ideas. And they, that we work with designers, we work with entertainers, we work with everybody that, you know, might need something. And we figure out how to do it. So, but the, the little Nas X thing is so amazing because I think that medieval vibe is just so hot. And so unexpected. And I, I just think, like, I, I, what I've always loved about your work and the chainmail thing is it, it sort of evokes this kind of courtly love idea of knights and noblemen. So it's just so fucking, it's very queer, but it's very powerful. Or it's like to, it, you're combining two things that no one's put together before, I guess. And it just, 
it just feels so politically powerful. I like that. I mean, you know, he's a remarkable kid. Um, he's obviously very gifted. Um, and he's fearless. He is one of those people that is going to keep growing and growing and growing and has such a career ahead of him. And it's so fun to get on the ground floor of that, I imagine, for you. Because so, so often you come to these legends as they are already legends and sort of we're, they're, we're building the, the little Nas X legend. You're making the... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, what we do is we take a person's sort of persona and we try and embellish it and create these magical moments for them that will arrest them in the public's eye for all time, you know? That's exactly what you've done with Little Nas X, because he is genius, a question and fearless, but you just putting those two things together. I couldn't take my eyes. I saw him perform recently in the iHeartRadio thing. And it was so mesmerizingly. It's James, you know, you were talking about crying while watching the ice skater. It was like I was crying just watching it because it was yeah. so I beautiful. It wasn't sentimental. It was. It was just. It was like oh, you're just watching pure artistry. Yeah, yeah. Of like in, in the, the peak yeah. of the, the bloom, the peak of their bloom. Yeah, yeah. That was a collaboration with Versace, um, and uh, and the challenge about that piece really was the fact that it's not only a suit, of, a golden suit of armor, but it's a tearaway suit of armor, which you know has all kinds of. How do you even do that? How do you have a tearaway suit of armor? That's insane. <laughs> Sounds like you should be giving your technology to NASA, not NASA giving it to you. <laughs> 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 and it's so wonderful to see you. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I will see you out and about, I'm sure, very soon. Yeah, it was great talking to you. And so, so great to see you. And Absolutely. I can't wait. I love you so much. It's been far too long. So much history. I love you. <laughs>